Chapter Six of the Story of the Pony Express by Glenn D. Bradley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Six. Riders and Famous Rides. Bart Riles, the pony rider, died this morning from wounds received at Cold Springs, May sixteenth. The men at Dry Creek Station have all been killed, and it is thought those at Roberts Creek have met with the same fate. Six Pikes Peakers found the body of the station keeper horribly mutilated, the station burned, and all the stock missing from Simpson's. Eight horses were stolen from Smith's Creek on last Monday, supposedly by road agents. The above are random extracts from frontier newspapers, printed while the Pony Express was running. The Express could never have existed on its high plane of efficiency without an abundance of cool-headed, hardened men, men who knew not fear, and who were expert, though sometimes in vain, in all the wonderful arts of self-preservation practiced on the old frontier. That these employees could have performed even the simplest of their duties without stirring and almost incredible adventures, it is needless to assert. The faithful relation of even a considerable number of the thrilling experiences to which the pony men were subjected would discount fiction. Yet few of these adventures have been recorded. Today, after a lapse of over fifty years, nearly all of the heroes who achieved them have gone out on that last long journey from which no man returns. While history can pay the tribute of preserving some anecdotes of them and their collective achievements, it must be forever silent as to many of their personal acts of heroism. While lasting praise is due the faithful station men who, in their isolation, so often bore the murderous attacks of Indians and bandits, it is perhaps to the riders that the seekers of romance is most likely to turn. It was the rider's skill and fortitude that made the operation of the line possible. Both riders and hostlers shared the same privations, often being reduced to the necessity of eating wolf meat and drinking foul or brackish water. While each rider was supposed to average seventy-five miles a trip, riding from three to seven horses, accidents were likely to occur, and it was not uncommon for a man to lose his way. Such delays meant serious trouble in keeping the schedule, keyed up as it was to the highest possible speed. It was confronting such emergencies, and in performing the duties of comrades who had been killed or disabled while awaiting their turns to ride, that the most exciting episodes took place. Among the more famous riders was Jim Moore, who later became a ranchman in the South Platte Valley, Nebraska. Moore made his greatest ride on June 8, 1860. He happened to be at Midway Station, halfway between the Missouri River and Denver, when the westbound messenger arrived with important government dispatches to California. Moore took up the run, riding continuously 140 miles to Old Julesburg, the end of his division. Here he met the eastbound messenger, also with important missives, from the coast to Washington. By all the rules of the game, Moore should have rested a few hours at this point, but his successor, who would have picked up the pouch and started eastward, had been killed the day before. 
The mail must go, and the schedule must be sustained. Without asking any favors of the man who had just arrived from the West, Moore resumed the saddle, after a delay of only ten minutes, without even stopping to eat, and was soon pounding eastward on his return trip. He made it, too, in spite of lurking Indians, hunger and fatigue, covering the round trip of two hundred and eighty miles in fourteen hours and forty-six minutes, an average speed of over eighteen miles an hour. Furthermore, his westbound mail had gone through from St. Joseph to Sacramento on a record-making run of eight days and nine hours. William James, always called Bill James, was a native of Virginia. He had crossed the plains with his parents in a wagon train when only five years old. At eighteen, he was one of the best Pony Express riders in the service. James's route lay between Simpson's Park and Coal Springs, Nevada, in the Smoky Valley range of mountains. He rode only sixty miles each way, but covered his round trip of one hundred and twenty miles in twelve hours, including all stops. He always rode California Mustangs, using five of these animals each way. His route crossed the summits of two mountain ridges, lay through the Shoshone Indian country, and was one of the loneliest and most dangerous divisions on the line. Yet Bill never took time to think about danger, nor did he ever have any serious trouble. Theodore Rand rode the Pony Express during the entire period of its organization. His run was from Box Elder to Julesburg, 110 miles, and he made the entire distance both ways by night. His schedule, night run though it was, required a gait of 10 miles an hour, but Rand often made it at an average of 12, thus saving time on the through schedule for some unfortunate rider who might have trouble and delay. Originally, Rand used only four or five horses each way, but this number, in keeping with the revised policy of the company, was afterward doubled, an extra mount being furnished him every twelve or fifteen miles. Johnny Fry, who has already been mentioned as the first rider out of St. Joseph, was little more than a boy when he entered the pony service. He was a native Missourian, weighing less than 125 pounds. Though small in stature, he was every inch a man. Fry's division ran from St. Joseph to Seneca, Kansas, 80 miles, which he covered at an average of 12 and one-half miles an hour, including all stops. When the war started, Fry enlisted in the Union Army under General Blunt. His short but worthy career was cut short in 1863 when he fell in a hand-to-hand -hand fight with rebel bushwhackers in Arkansas. In this, his last fight, Fry is said to have killed five of his assailants before being struck down. Jim Beatley, whose real name was Foote, was another Virginian, about twenty-five years of age. He rode on an eastern division, usually west out of Seneca. On one occasion, he traveled from Seneca to Big Sandy, fifty miles and back, doubling his route twice in one week. Beatley was killed by a stagehand in a personal quarrel, the affair taking place on a ranch in southern Nebraska in 1862. 
William Bolton was one of the older riders in the service. His age at that time is given at about thirty-five. Bolton rode for about three months with Bately. Note. Pony riders often alternated runs with each other over their respective divisions in the same manner as do railroad train crews at the present time. On one occasion, while running between Seneca and Guitards, Bolton's horse gave out when five miles from the latter station. Without a moment's delay, he removed his letter pouch and hurried the mail in on foot, where a fresh horse was at once provided and the schedule resumed. Melville Bond, usually known as Mel, had a pony run between Fort Kearney and Thirty-Two Mile Creek. Once, while laying off between trips, a thief made off with his favorite horse. Scarcely had the miscreant gotten away when Bond discovered the loss. Hastily saddling another steed, Mel gave pursuit, and, though handicapped, because the outlaw had the pick of the stable, Bond's superior horsemanship, even on an inferior mount, soon told. After a chase of several miles, he forced the fellow so hard that he abandoned the stolen animal at a place called Loop Fork and sneaked away. Recovering the horse, Bond then returned to his station, found a mail awaiting him, and was off on his run without further delay. With him and his fellow employees, running down a horse thief was but a trifling incident, and an annoyance merely because of the bother and delay which it necessitated. Bon was afterward hanged for murder at Seneca, but his services to the Pony Express were above reproach. Another Eastern Division man was Jack Keatley, who also rode from St. Joseph to Seneca, alternating at times with Fry and Bon. Keatley's greatest performance, and one of the most remarkable ever achieved in the service, was riding from Rock Creek to St. Joseph, then back to his starting point and on to Seneca, and from Seneca once more to Rock Creek, three hundred and forty miles without rest. He traveled continuously for thirty-one hours, his entire run being at the rate of eleven miles an hour. During the last five miles of his journey, he fell asleep in the saddle, and in this manner concluded his long trip. Don C. Rising, who afterwards settled in northern Kansas, was born in Painted Post, Steuben County, New York, in 1844, and came west when thirteen years of age. He rode in the pony service nearly a year, from November 1860, until the line was abandoned the following October, most of his service being rendered before he was seventeen. Much of his time was spent running eastward out of Fort Kearney until the telegraph had reached that point and made the operation of the express between the fort and St. Joseph no longer necessary. On two occasions, rising is said to have maintained a continuous speed of twenty miles an hour while carrying important dispatches between Big Sandy and Rock Creek. One rider who was well known as Little Yank was a boy scarcely out of his teens and weighing barely one hundred pounds. He rode along the Platte River between Cottonwood Springs and Old Julesburg and frequently made one hundred miles on a single trip. 
Another man named Hogan, of whom little is known, rode northwesterly out of Julesburg across the Platte and to Mud Springs, eighty miles. Jimmy Clark rode between various stations east of Fort Kearney, usually between Big Sandy and Hollenburg. Sometimes his run took him as far west as Liberty Farm on the Little Blue River. James W. Brink, or Doc Brink as he was known to his associates, was one of the early riders, entering the employ of the Pony Express Company in April 1860. While Doc made a good record as a courier, his chief fame was gained in a fight at Rock Creek Station, in which Brink and Wild Bill cleaned out the McCandless gang of outlaws, killing five of their number. Note. Wild Bill Hickok was one of the most noted gunfighters that the West ever produced. As Marshal of Abilene, Kansas, and other wild frontier towns, he became a terror to bad men and compelled them to respect law and order when under his jurisdiction. Probably no man has ever equaled him in the use of the six-shooter. Numerous magazine articles describing his career can be found. Charles Cliff had an eighty-mile pony run when only seventeen years of age, but, like Brink, young Cliff gained his greatest reputation as a fighter, in his case fighting Indians. It seems that while Cliff was once freighting with a small train of nine wagons, it was attacked by a party of one hundred Sioux Indians and besieged for three days until a larger train approached and drove the redskins away. During the conflict, Cliff received three bullets in his body and twenty-seven in his clothing, but he soon recovered from his injuries and was afterward nonetheless valuable to the Pony Express service. J. G. Kelly, later a citizen of Denver, was a veteran pony man. He entered the employ of the company at the outset and helped Superintendent Roberts to lay out the route across Nevada. Along the Carson River, tiresome stretches of corduroy road had to be built. Kelly relates that in constructing this highway, willow trees were cut near the stream and the trunks cut into the desired lengths before being laid in place. The men often had to carry these timbers in their arms for three hundred yards, while the mosquitoes swarmed so thickly upon their faces and hands as to make their real color and identity hard to determine. At the sink of the Carson, a great depression of the river on its course through the desert, Kelly assisted in building a fort for protecting the line against Indians. Here there were no rocks nor timber, and so the structure had to be built of adobe mud. To get this mud to a proper consistency, the men tramped it all day with their bare feet. The soil was soaked with alkali, and, as a result, according to Kelly's story, their feet were swollen so as to resemble hams. They next erected a fort at Sand Springs, twenty miles from Carson Lake, and another at Cold Springs, thirty-two miles east of Sand Springs. At Cold Springs, Kelly was appointed assistant station-keeper under Jim McNaughton. An outbreak of the Paiute Indians was now in progress, and as the little station was in the midst of the disturbed area, there was plenty of excitement. One night, while Kelly was on guard, 
his attention was attracted by the uneasiness of the horses. Gazing carefully through the dim light, he saw an Indian peering over the outer wall or stockade. The orders of the post were to shoot every Indian that came within range, so Kelly blazed away, but missed his man. In the morning many tracks were found about the place. This wild shot had probably frightened the prowlers away, saving the station from attack and certain destruction. During this same morning a Mexican pony rider came in, mortally wounded, having been shot by the savages from ambush while passing through a dense thicket in the vicinity known as Quaking Asp Bottom. Although given tender care, the poor fellow died within a few hours after his arrival. The mail was waiting, and it must go. Kelly, who was the lightest man in the place, he weighed but one hundred pounds, was now ordered by the boss to take the dead man's place and go on with the dispatches. This he did, finishing the run without further incident. On his return trip, he had to pass once more through the aspen thicket where his predecessor had received his death wound. This was one of the most dangerous points in the entire trail, for the road zigzagged through a jungle, following a passageway that was only large enough to admit a horse and rider. For two miles a man could not see more than thirty or forty feet ahead. Kelly was expecting trouble, and went through like a whirlwind, at the same time holding a repeating rifle in readiness, should trouble occur. On having cleared the thicket, he drew rein on the top of a hill, and, looking back over his course, saw the bushes moving in a suspicious manner. Knowing there was no livestock in that locality, and that wild game rarely abounded there, he sent several shots in the direction of the moving underbrush. The motion soon ceased, and he galloped onward, unharmed. A few days later, two United States soldiers, while traveling to join their command, were ambushed and murdered in the same thicket. This was about the time when Major Ormsby's command was massacred by the Utes in the disaster at Pyramid Lake, and the Indians everywhere in Nevada were unusually aggressive and dangerous. There were seldom more than three or four men in the little station, and it is remarkable that Kelly and his companions were not all killed. One of Kelly's worst rides, in addition to the episode just related, was the stretch between Cold Springs and Sand Springs for thirty-seven miles without a drop of water along the way. Once, while dashing past a wagon train of immigrants, a whole fusillade of bullets was fired at Kelly, who narrowly escaped with his life. Of course he could not stop the mail to see why he had been shot at, but on his return trip he met the same crowd, and in unprintable language, told them what he thought of their lawless and irresponsible conduct. The only satisfaction he could get from them in reply was the repeated assertion, "'We thought you was an Indian!' Note. Indians would sometimes gaze in open-mouthed wonder at the onrushing ponies. To some of them the pony outfit was bad medicine and not to be molested. There was a certain air of mystery about the wonderful system and untiring energy with which the riders followed their course. Unfortunately, 
a majority of the red men were not always content to watch the pony in simple wonder. They were too frequently bent upon committing deviltry to refrain from doing harm whenever they had a chance. Nor was Kelly the only pony rider who took narrow chances from the guns of excited immigrants. Traveling rapidly and unencumbered, the rider, sunburned and blackened by exposure, must have borne on first glance no little resemblance to an Indian, and especially would the mistake be natural to excited wagon men who were always in fear of dashing attacks from mounted Indians, attacks in which a single rider would often be deployed to ride past the white man at utmost speed in order to draw their fire. Then, when their guns were empty, a hidden band of savages would make a furious onslaught. It was the established rule of the West in those days, in case of suspected danger, to shoot first and make explanations afterward, to do to the other fellow as he would do to you, and do it first. Added to the perils of the wilderness deserts, blizzards, and wild Indians, the pony riders then had at times to beware of their white friends under such circumstances as have been narrated and that added to the tragical romance of their daily lives. Yet they courted danger and were seldom disappointed, for danger was always near them. End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Moline